Uh, good morning again and welcome. It's good to see you here at South Baton Rouge. And if you are visiting, we want to say welcome again. We hope that the things that you hear here are helpful and encouraging to you. We hope that you meet a number of people uh, and see the potential for good fellowship and friendship in this place. We um, are continuing this morning in the book of Romans, and which we started a little bit over a couple of months ago, I guess two, three months ago. So if you have a Bible, you may want to follow along in your Bible, even though it's printed in the bulletin for you. If not, we've got the words printed for you in the bulletin, the passage that we'll be looking at. Uh, when we began this series, um, like I say, a few months ago now, I guess, our working premise was that this letter was written by Paul as a missionary letter of introduction, by means of which he hoped to enlist the support and the encouragement of the Roman church. And um, a church that he had not planted, but about which he had some knowledge because apparently he had met some of the people along the way in his other journeys. And further, it has been part of our working hypothesis that Paul's ultimate purpose in seeking the support of the Roman church is so that he might shift his base of operations from Antioch, which was over in the east, and uh, to over to Rome, which would then make his continued westward expansions of the gospel uh, much more feasible. He really wanted to get to Spain and uh, go as far as Spain with the gospel mission. And so as part of his introduction of himself and uh, enlisting support, Paul, by means of this letter, lays out his core theological beliefs, all of which are centered around the gospel, the good news of what God had accomplished through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And this, as it turns out, uh, this whole presentation kind of functions as a way of Paul sort of showing his credentials and assuring the Roman church they can rely on him and to faithfully advance the same gospel by which they had been saved. In other words, he would be a good guy for them to partner with in this ongoing mission. Now, Paul knew enough about the Roman church to know that they were a mix of both Gentile and Jewish uh, Christians. And so in talking about the gospel to them, he wants to clearly communicate his understanding that, as John Stott says, the salvation that came through Jesus is equally available to both Jews and Gentiles, an expression that, as we've seen in the past, is kind of Paul's way of referring to the, the whole world. At any rate, if Paul is going to reaffirm the truth that the gospel is indeed a message to all people, he needs to demonstrate that all people, both Jews and Gentiles, are badly in need of this message. He wants to show that Jews and Gentiles stand equally condemned before the Lord as unrighteous and ungodly and thus desperately in need of a righteousness, a right standing with God that they cannot provide for themselves. They need it. They can't provide it. And so if they're going to have it at all, it must be provided for them by something or someone that is outside of them, which is to say, from God and by God. And so that, uh, that is the section in which we find ourselves currently, this whole set of scriptures running from verse 18 of chapter 1 through verse 20 of chapter 3, and in which Paul is delivering the bad news before laying out in great detail really, really good news. Most recently, Paul's been talking about how God's wrath is justifiably aimed at men and women uh, who have ignored and suppressed the truth 
of his existence and therefore have not honored God as they ought to and have not given thanks to him as they should have done. His wrath is further justified by the fact that not only have many women suppressed the truth about him, but they've sought to replace God, to worship um, something, someone, anyone else rather than the true and living God. And this, as we saw, is because what we ultimately want, what we, broken people, ultimately want in our sinfulness is a God of our own creation, which, as we saw last week, is really, at the end of the day, is a form of self-worship. This morning we'll be picking up with that line of thought and seeing some of the further consequences of humanity's attempts at first rejecting and then secondly replacing God Namely, the very grave decision and action that God himself makes to give people over to the very things they choose. Now, what that all means, we'll see in a moment. But first, let's read the passage, starting at verse 22, to give it a little bit more context. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. As we look at these verses together this morning, we'll be looking to answer a few questions. Firstly, the beginning of verse 24, the word therefore appears. Therefore is a concluding word, a summarizing sort of word. And so the first question is, what is the therefore there for? The second question is, what does it mean when Paul says God gave them up, that is gave men and women up to impurity? Was it mean for God to do that? The third question is, what is the impurity in view here? What is Paul talking about? Um, And the fourth question is, why does Paul focus on this particular impurity? Why does he single this out in a way that he doesn't with other things? And finally, we'll look at what all this means for us and how we ought to respond to these matters. Before we do, um, let's pray together. Father in heaven, please help us now to continue to hear the good things you have for us in this uh, important, challenging, comforting, encouraging, and times yet even unsettling portion of your word. Use it to sculpt us into forms that resemble you in order that we might bear more and more precisely your likeness. 
And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now the first question before us has to do with this word, therefore, that appears at the beginning of verse 24. It's a word that says to us, because such and such is true, these sort of things follow. Or this sort of thing is true, or this sort of thing is happening, or has happened, or will happen. And so again, Paul says, therefore, God gave them up. Now we'll look at this idea of God giving people up in a moment, but the question now is, what is it that has resulted in God giving them up? What is it that's triggered this action on God's part? And the answer is found in two places, I think. Firstly, it's found in verses 22 to 23, the first part that we read. In those verses, Paul is talking about one of the consequences of people's rejection of God, namely, that they turn from honoring Him and giving Him thanks to the veneration and worship of false gods, of idols, of replacement gods, other things, right? Apart from God Himself are regarded as a source of authority or power or significance or as a way to try and control or manage the future or something having supreme or ultimate value. Other things besides God. God but God who alone is worthy of that sort of devotion and that kind of honor and that kind of gratitude He's angered by the willful rejection of himself, especially since he's gone out of his way, as Paul's already shown us in this passage, he's gone out of his way to ensure that his fingerprints are all over the cosmos. And they are. And it is undeniable, there is no excuse, says Paul, for not picking up on that fact. And yet people act like God isn't there. And God's not happy about that. The other place where you can see what has triggered God's actions is not only in verses immediately preceding, but also in the verses immediately following. Verse 25, where Paul talks about people who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Though the language here is slightly different, uh, basically is a repeat of what has already been said. Uh, The lie referred to here in context would have to be anything that's offered up as an alternative to God, as a focal point for glory and honor and thanks. And any such thing would ultimately be self-serving, would involve the worship of some creaturely aspect of God's creation rather than worshiping the Creator Himself. So that is the thing that's gotten God going, so to speak. That is one thing, even if perhaps it's not the only thing, but it's at least one thing that's provoked a justifiable wrath from God, as we've seen in previous studies. And that leads to the next question, namely, what does it mean that God, in response to this, gave them up to impurity? Because that is the response that is in view here. That is the specific form of that the wrath of God is said by Paul to have taken. People have suppressed the knowledge of the true God. They sought to replace it with false worship of things that are not God. And the consequence of that is the wrath of God and the specific form or shape of that wrath that, that is taken, says Paul, is that God has given them up to impurity. That's the form of his wrath being talked about here. So what is that about? For starters, and as Stott has pointed out, this is the first of a threefold pattern in these verses. We won't see it all today. A threefold pattern of repetition 
where Paul paints a picture of how God's wrath is presently, as in right now, being revealed. In a previous look at the subject of the wrath of God, uh, we've seen how God's wrath was revealed at the cross of Christ, how it's also revealed through the ongoing reality of death, as well as through the continuing brokenness and futility that is inherent in the world. All those things are true. But starting with verse 24, Paul further highlights how the wrath of God is presently being made manifest, namely by his handing over or giving people over to impurity. Now we're going to look at what Paul means by the impurity in a moment, but for a moment I want to think about this matter of God's handing people over. Starting with the understanding that clearly, given the language here, this is a form of judgment. Right? This is a form of judgment. God is provoked to wrath by the rejection and idolatry of his people. In response, he gives them over to something. And whatever that thing is, the point and purpose of people being given over to it is that the world, is that it would serve as some form of judgment. Some kind, have some kind of punitive effect or consequence. That is the plain teaching of this passage. And then keeping that in mind, the other thing to notice about this judgment that takes the shape of people being given over to impurity is that this is not typically, is it? It's not typically the way that we tend to think about God's judgments coming down, is it? We usually think of some active process as a judgment, like an earthquake that swallows up a whole tribe of people, or lightning from the sky, or a flood that ravages the earth. That's how we usually think about judgment. That's the kind of image that usually comes to mind when we think about the judgments of God. But here, the judgment talked about is not an active process, it's a passive one. It's more like a restraint or a barrier being taken away. The idea is something like, if you can imagine, a canoeist in a raging river who believes that she's skillful enough and strong enough to hop in her canoe and make her way upstream against this very, very strong current. So she hops in her canoe, you grab the rope on the front, the painter, and you hold on to it as she quickly slips backward, being carried to the end of the rope by the rushing waters. Behind her, only 20 yards away, is the edge of a thousand foot waterfall that would surely be disastrous should she go over it. And you try and urge her, you plead with her that if she continues to think that she can fight this stream and make it upstream on her own, she's going to be undone by that. She may believe, and even quite sincerely believe, that she can do it, but you know better. You know there's not a canoeist on the planet that could go upstream against this current. But she insists you're wrong. She demands that you give her what she wants. So you do. You let go of the painter. You hand her over to her choices and watch the predictable result as she paddles mightily, maybe even beautifully, but in the end, completely ineffectively and goes tragically over the falls. That is more the idea here of being given over. It is the passive removal of a restraining influence. That is the form that God's judgment sometimes takes. 
people have rejected him without excuse and have believed a lie rather than the truth. They've worshipped anything and everything except the Creator. And one response, one response on God's part is to let them go. To remove the restraints. To let the internal momentum of their own sin have its way. One writer puts it this way, talking about how the anger of God goes quietly and invisibly to work in handing sinners over to themselves. It operates not by God's intervention, but precisely by His not intervening. By letting men and women go their own way, God abandons stubborn sinners to their willful self-centeredness, and the resulting process of moral and spiritual degeneration is to be understood as a judicial act of God. This is the revelation of God's wrath from heaven. Or as C.S. Lewis brilliantly commented, the gates of hell are always locked from the inside, not the outside. The third and obvious question at this point is, what is this impurity to which Paul is referring? Now I say it's an obvious question, but to judge from the level of debate that's gone on about this passage, one would think that it's anything but obvious what Paul is referring to. He talks about God giving people up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, which, to be fair, may still at this point be intended as a kind of general reference that would have in view not only the specified actions soon to be mentioned in verses 26-27, but also to the laundry list of attitudes and behaviors about to be rehearsed in verses 28-32. to But very quickly, he inserts other language. More specific language. It talks about people dishonoring their bodies among themselves. And then about people having dishonorable passions. And then if the picture isn't clear enough yet, he starts to get even more specific, starting with the description of women who exchange natural relations for those contrary to nature. And then on the heels of that, he describes men giving up natural relations with women and being consumed with passion for one another and then men committing shameless acts with men. Now, now apart from willful blindness, I really think there could be no question that what Paul is talking about here is the specific impurity of homosexual practice. Now, I want to say something in a moment as to why I believe Paul chooses to single out this particular expression of the fallenness of humanity, because he does single it out here in a way. And sure, Paul is going to go on and mention other expressions of fallen, sinful humanity that are equally, hear me say that, equally heinous in God's eyes. But you still have to deal with the undeniable fact that Paul has singled out the reality of homosexual practice here in a way that he does not and will not do with other expressions of human brokenness that are coming. It's a little different. That's our fourth question. We're not there yet. Let's return to this third question regarding the nature of the impurity that Paul has in view. Because as I've said, even though on a plain reading of the text it would seem fairly obvious that what Paul is talking about here is homosexual practice. But if you were to review the available literature on this subject, you would think that Paul was not clear about this. Some, for example, have made much of Paul's use of the words nature and the phrase contrary to nature in verses 26 and 27. The argument has been made... That when Paul talks about nature, what he means is personal nature. 
or natural disposition of a given person. And then on that interpretation, it is argued that this could not be a blanket statement about the wrongness of homosexuality because making such a statement would be to ask people to conduct themselves in ways that were contrary to their nature, to their natural dispositions and desires. However, to come to such a conclusion, to read modern-day discussions about nature and disposition back into Paul's language as if that was what on his, was on his mind, is to do so in a way that would never have occurred to Paul. The kind of discussions that we were having today, they were not having. John Stott's helpful in summarizing how we ought to think about Paul's use of these phrases. We have no liberty, he says, to interpret the noun nature as meaning my nature, or the adjective natural as meaning what seems natural to me. On the contrary, the Greek word here, physis, means God's created order. To act against nature, then, means to violate the order that God has established, whereas to act according to nature means to behave in accordance with the intention of the Creator. Moreover, the intention of the Creator means His original intention. If you want to know what that is, read Matthew 19. You'll see Jesus' confirmation of the Creator's original intention there, Matthew 19. Now, this is an important point and observation on this whole issue. Because in contemporary discussions about homosexuality, a lot of energy is often spent debating issues of nature versus nurture uh, and what roles those things play. Uh, similarly, there's also a great deal of talk about a person's, uh, the question of a person's identity with the assumption being that it is all wrapped up inseparably with their sexuality and with their natural inclinations and their desires or proclivities, a concept which you should know is a very recent development, historically speaking. and would have been a completely foreign concept for the vast, vast majority of humanity over the course of world history. In other words, when this debate goes on today, a great deal of emphasis is placed upon the issue of someone's personal nature and physical desires and leanings and those things as being determinative or normative. However, as one writer points out, this perspective is, to say the least, problematic. In a world where God is the creator and designer of life, natural means in sync with God's purposes and design, not just anything that has physical causes. All right? Having a physical root makes nothing right. Physically based Aggressive tendencies may lead to violent behavior, but we don't condone it. Physically based lethargic tendencies may lead to laziness and neglect, but we don't condone it. Frenetic tendencies may lead to disruption and workaholism. A gloomy bent may lead to suicidal thoughts. An anxious bent may lead to paranoia. Addictive tendencies may lead to alcoholism or bondage, to gambling or deadly smoking. A low frustration threshold may lead to outbursts of rage. Strong sexual desires may lead to lust or pornography or fornication or adultery or polygamy. In other words, in a world where the effect of sin permeates to the roots of nature and disorders all of life, 
we cannot define as good and natural whatever has physical roots. There must be a higher norm than our fallen natures. There are many physically based abnormalities in the world. Therefore, having a physical base or root is not sufficient reason for condoning anything as natural or good. At the end of the day, then, our starting point in thinking about these sorts of things cannot be, it cannot be with ourselves and with our physical leanings and desires and the attractions, very real, very real attractions of our fallen, sin-broken hearts and minds. It has to have a different starting point. Not what is natural to us, but what is according to the nature of how the Creator intended things to be. That is Paul's starting point. And it is the reason why he can categorize homosexual practice as being against nature. Because it is not in accordance with the Creator's intentions for human relationships, human flourishing as seen so clearly, for example, in the Genesis narratives. Which brings us to the fourth question. Why does Paul focus on this particular expression of humanity's brokenness? What, why does he single out uh, homosexual practice in a way that he does not do with other sins, at least here, which he's soon to mention? Now, is it because, for example, he regarded homosexual practice as somehow intrinsically or categorically more heinous than other expressions of human sin or rebellion? Such as, again, for example, the things found in verses 29 to 31. And I think the short answer is no, I don't think so. I don't think he regarded it in that way. I don't think that's why he did it. The reason I think Paul highlights homosexual practice here is not because it is somehow categorically worse than other struggles and expressions of our sinfulness, but because it is paradigmatic, it is illustrative of the tragic consequences of refusing to honor the Creator and be thankful for Him and how He's determined that things should be. It's a pretty clear kind of picture of what suppressing the truth of God looks like and what it can lead to. It's an example of what refusing to honor the Creator is about. It's about replacing God's designs and His ways and the manner in which he set up things and has determined they should be. It's a picture of supplanting God's ordering of things with a person's individual pursuits or preferences or determinations about what is and is not to be regarded as natural or good or right. And so what Paul is saying is this, if people will not worship the Creator but instead worship the creature... If people exchange the truth about God for the lie of idolatry, then one of the forms, one of the forms of God's judgment and that it will take upon a society, one of the ways that God responds to these things is seen in God's giving a people over, removing all restraint, allowing things to run their course. In many areas, I suspect, but the one highlighted here, is homosexual practice because it so clearly illustrates where the rejection of God's designs can lead. Which leads us to consider what our response is and ought to be to these things. Uh, we don't have much time, so this 
I tell you right now, will be an insufficient response, an incomplete. We have to start somewhere. For starters, we have to keep in mind that sin and the fall are real. And they have real consequences. One of them being that all that seems natural is not necessarily good and right. We, we're broken people. We are all broken. Human nature is marred and has been disordered by the effects of sin. As a result, all that we feel and desire and want to do naturally is not necessarily in sync with God's design and purposes. This applies in a number of areas. Same-sex attraction is just one area among many. And I know it's real. And there are people in our congregation that struggle here. Who genuinely love the Lord. Struggle here. And I know it's hard. It feels natural. But it doesn't mean it is. Everybody here struggles with things. They would swear are natural. And they're not. This is a live issue. An ongoing struggle for a number of our brothers and sisters. And by that I mean genuine brothers and sisters. Not everybody. But some struggle here. And for others there are struggles that are equally defeating. Equally challenging. Equally dishonoring for God when we fail. And so whether the struggle is same-sex attraction or pornography or dependency addictions or uncontrolled anger or gossip and slander. Whatever the area is. It is no less problematic. No one's sin in this room is somehow prettier or less offensive in God's eyes than the next person's. No one's. And that means at least two things for us. It means we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to be faithful to God and use the words that God uses and call things as He sees them. And view them in the way that God views them. All things, including this particular matter of homosexual practice. There's nothing to be gained. Nothing to be gained. And everything to be lost by deliberately distorting what God has clearly said. Or willfully ignoring what God has said on this matter. Or acting like the scriptures aren't clear when actually they're very clear. We must not deny what God has said. We must not add to what God has said. We must not take out of context what God has said. No Good will ever come of that. So we need to see this as God sees it, but we also need to respond to it as God has responded to it. And as He's responded to His broken and fallen creation in general. And that's with a cross. He responded by sending His Son to effect and secure a forgiveness and a right standing for a people that could never hope to have secured it or deserved it for themselves. In other words, we need to lead with mercy, lead with grace, and tell of God's kindness to forgive the wayward and lost and struggling who come to Him in their brokenness and who will and can find rest, whatever it is they're struggling with, including same-sex attractions.
We need to realize that this is a real painful struggle for a number of people, both outside and inside the church, and we need to be prepared to come alongside people, to love them, and walk with them through this particular struggle, just as we would do with any, regard to any other struggle in which we all become entangled. And we need to do so as the fellow travelers that we are. Because every single one of us wrestles with our hearts. Every single one of us has to fight daily with things that our heart wants more than anything else but cannot have. Every one of us struggles to honor God as God and with being thankful to Him for how He has done things and for His designs and His ways. Every one of us in our own ways would very much like to replace God with an alternative that is much more manageable and much more suited to our desires. So let me just say this. If you are here this morning and this particular temptation is a live issue for you, if this is an area where you struggle, then I want you to know you are in the right place here. This is a safe place for you to invite someone into that struggle with you to help you walk through it. And you need to know that you are no more or no less in need of the mercy and forgiveness of Christ than anybody else in this room. But remember this too. Your identity is not, not defined by this struggle. It is not a function of your sexuality. Your identity is entirely a function of your standing before God. A standing that can only be secured by a righteousness that God alone can provide. And that is freely available to anyone who will come in all their sin and all their brokenness, including this particular brokenness, to the cross of Christ as the undeserving sinner that he or she is. And put all, all of your hopes there. Because nobody in this room is going to make it apart from that. Nobody. Let's pray. Father, this is such a hot-button issue for the church and examples abound of how poorly your church in general has often responded. So help us to learn how to do that better, Father. To respond to your truth by first receiving it for what it is, but not isolating a truth about your designs and purposes from the truth about the compassion and mercy and grace that you offer to all of us as we resist you and what you're doing. Father, help us to respond better, to be a place that is actually safe 
for all of us to be and own up to and enlist help in addressing uh, our hearts in all the different ways that we wonder. And Father, through that, through a community, encouraging one another, building one another up, would you make us more like your son? Would you finish this thing that you've started? Would you bring to full fruition the promises that some days seem very faint and some days brighter? Would you do that? Help us to trust and believe until that day. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. We'll now take up an offering for those who want to support the work, ministry of this church and ministries through this church this time.